Hello, this is Kat. This is Phoebe, and we're Feminine Chaos. Hello. So Phoebe, what are we talking about today? We are talking about, you know what, Kat? I think it might be actually asking too much emotional and invisible labor of me to ask that. Did you consider that? I have thought about that. You are a very invisible person. Um, you know, as, as I often <laughs> mention, I've, I've never even seen your bottom half. I'm not sure that you have one. <laughs> like... I don't. You know what I am? I am floating, disembodied, above an office chair near a desk, sort of my hands kind of behind my head, my eyes closed, a blissed out expression, wearing dress shoes, but with a child's drawing taped to my large office wall. But it's not me taking care of that child. It is it is my bedraggled poet wife. Did that make any sense? <laughs> I got a little lost in the imagery. Okay, this was, I, I never did great in art history, but here's the thing. I'm trying to describe an image from it's the Getty image that Anne Helen Peterson used in her uh, culture study Substack essay called Why Are, and then in parentheses, white, end parentheses, men so unambitious? Yeah, so it's illustrated with this picture of this businessman who is floating, and he has, oh, also a skateboard in his office because he's a man child as well, of course, of course. I, I have, how would I not notice this? I almost think you don't need the essay because it's kind of all in this picture. Yeah, it sounds like it might be. So here's, this is going to be kind of like the topic of today's podcast more generally. Is this a throwback type essay? Is this a Jezebel circa 2015 je sort of Jezebel essay? Or is this just how it is now? Um, but it's anyway, it's one of these articles about how men have it easy particularly white men, women have it tough, particularly women of color. And aren't women just the best? Women do so, so much. Women are so hardworking, type A, amazing. Men are just layabouts. And if it doesn't go well for them, it's that the loss of privilege feels like oppression and blah, blah, blah. Now, that is my <laughs> summary of this article. That could also be the summary of the entire oeuvre of the person who wrote it. <laughs> It could, it could. So, so there is something where we have talked about this writer before. Um, I'm sure she's a lovely person. That's not it. This article was not maybe so great. Um, and what I found so funny about it was like, in theory, it should be speaking to me. Like, it, it's, it's one of these articles. Okay, let me let me take a step back. So her thing is to sort of talk about a very, very specific situation, but say, but kind of, but it's society. It's systemic. It's everybody's situation. Um, and uh, someone I follow on Twitter had posted sort of side by side, like the screenshot of where Anne Helen Peterson had actively publicly solicited for references, like, I think, like movie or literary something references to the thing she's talking about. And then where she sort of puts it in the piece as if this is just something she found while... Um, while out there about these yeah so it's this thing about women who are um organizational queens with o and q being capitalized l woods olivia pope jennifer lopez in the wedding planner leslie nope janine on abbott elementary harriet the spy blah blah it goes on and on and on and apparently taylor swift and beyonce and it's about how women go on study abroad and more than men do which i can attest that was true when i went on study abroad okay i had theories about that that were different but that's fine um 
yes, she's basically like she is talking about herself, but it's it's everybody. Actually, this is about everybody. Actually, and the way that writers do this, she's not the only one. This is kind of like the default thing in a certain type of writing, certain type of feminist writing, is to say actually. I am so aware of everybody because look how bad it is for me, but actually it's really worse. Imagine if I were black, imagine if I were whatever else, right? Yeah, yeah, that's certainly a thing that has become like the default. But what's funny about this is she's talking basically about women who have PhDs and are now writers. I am a woman who has a PhD and is now a writer and I do not find this relatable. So what I'm wondering is who is this for? Because I am the the narrow audience for this thing that she's claiming to have an infinite audience. And there's this line in it that I just want to dwell on um, for 10 hours straight, which is um, women also know that even that, which is even if they do all these things, get everything right, whatever, will not be enough that a PhD doesn't prevent a date from lecturing on your area of expertise. Okay. <laughs> so I have a theory about who this is for. Go for um, it. If I Go may. for it. No, I don't know. Cat cat, you don't have you don't have a PhD in nineteenth century France. <laughs> so I don't think I don't think you should be allowed to talk to me. I'm in this I don't like have a PhD in anything. I'm in this silo where you literally have to have a degree in in the like obscure and worthless thing I have a degree in to uh, talk to me. This seems like it's gonna be very hard on your children. Like how long do they have to earn their, or do they, is it just like, is it one of those things where it's like they have to have a PhD or be actively working towards one so they get a pass because they're actively working towards it? (laughs) I mean, my husband has a PhD, but not in French. So uh, yeah, you know, I. So he doesn't get to talk to you either. Nope, nope, nope. Silent treatment, like in that other essay that we'll talk about. Um, So, but I want to hear your theory. I I let, in all seriousness, I do want to hear your theory. Who is this for? Well, now that you negged me for not having a PhD, I don't want to tell you. No, um, I think that despite the fact that it seems like this is aimed at or aimed to be relatable to a particular demographic of people, what I actually think it is, is aspirational. And that's Mm. the audience it's aimed at. It's aimed at women who read that passage about how, like, no matter what you do, no matter how many PhDs you get, it'll just never be enough to stop yourself from being aggrieved and and um, put upon by men. The audience for that kind of a statement and this kind of an essay in which that, you know, ethos is embodied, it's people who want that to be true, you know, who find it satisfying in some way to feel that this is kind of the theory that explains everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, this is another aspect of this essay that I find um, tricky, which is this idea of what is and isn't aspirational and what does it mean to be successful? And this comes up in general in this topic of um, men falling behind, which is what she's talking about, this Richard Reeves article, argument about um you know, boys and men falling behind, getting fewer degrees and so forth. Because I think, and this is going to be very relevant to our next topic, there's success and there's success. And it's very possible to do very well on paper in certain ways and have all these graduate degrees and have studied abroad and all of this and still make $3 a year and not be in a very different place materially than a woman of an earlier generation. 
a middle class woman of an earlier generation, which is what all the people we're talking about are. They're not very rich people. They're not poor people. These are middle class people. I wonder with this, um, both in the thing that Anne Helen Peterson is criticizing about this sort of men falling behind and in her own argument about it, what does it mean that women have done everything right and been so, so, so successful? Like, it's complicated. It's not, it doesn't actually mean that now women are in charge and make more money and call the shots. It, it's, it's more complicated than that, which she kind of touches on, but then also doesn't. So I don't know. That's where I'm, I'm a little lost. She does this thing that, again, this is her oeuvre as a writer, and I'm sure that she's a lovely person. Uh, I just really, I find this particular aspect of her work loathsome. I don't really know how else to put it. Um, She brings up the plight of men, which is ostensibly, you know, the hook for this essay, basically by way of dismissing it in favor of beating the drum that she always beats. And I think that ties back to the idea of like, who is this for? Like, this is... I don't know. It's like a sermon, you know, like, I mean, and the, mm-hmm. the sort of invariably the what these essays ultimately end up being. It's like you get up and there's like there's a contemporary hook. I just saw this. I just read this. And I just want to say that that's bullshit because the real truth, the real gospel is this other thing that I say <laughs> all the time. And then you go into saying the thing yeah. that you say like every Sunday or every essay if you're, you know, a secular writer rather than a preacher up at a pulpit. Yes. I mean, that is a, a thing that you can do, obviously. Like that is a, a mode of communication. It's a mode of writing. Um, I I feel like I would like it a lot more in a church than I like it in essays on the internet. But then again, sometimes people read essays on the internet like they're attending church. So maybe that's why this is for them. But as a a contribution to the cultural discourse, I find it very frustrating um, because it is so kind of like relentlessly uninterested in the humanity of everybody else. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. It's even, it's, it's uninterested in the, I would go so far as to say, so it's clearly uninterested in the humanity of men. It's uninterested in the socioeconomic diversity of white men. Fine. It is, you know, obviously failing on that ground, but also it's uninterested in women because I'm obsessed with this parenthetical. Okay. It says in parentheses and italics side note, There's a whole additional conversation to have here about women who struggle with planning an organization and how that messes with both their understanding of ambition and femininity. And I hope we have it in the comments and parentheses. Okay. Women who are not Elle Woods from Legally Blonde. Thank you, Brain, for summoning that. I'm not Elle Woods. (laughs) Well, me neither, right? And I mean, even then, I almost would say that that wasting my 20s getting a PhD and making not very much money per year to do so, maybe that was me being not super go-getter. And if I'd been more go-getter, I wouldn't have done that. But anyway, it depends. Obviously, like, there is a wide world of people out there, much less ambitious, cat than either of us, who are women, you know? And, like, that's real. <laughs> Those are people, too. And um, I don't know. The idea of putting women who aren't super ambitious in a sort of parenthetical seems utterly ridiculous, you know, and just so, so denying of the humanity of women. (laughs) Yeah. And okay. Actually, I did, I didn't necessarily want to bring this up, but I think I have to, just because we, we did now mention Elle Woods and 
she sort of like acknowledges this to dismiss it in the essay, but like Elle Woods, the source of her ambition, the entire reason that she ended up at Harvard Law School was because she was trying to get her boyfriend back. Like that's the only reason that she did it to begin with. She was completely uninterested in the law. She just wanted to like get into Harvard so that she could impress this guy who thought she wasn't good enough and get him to to come back to her Thank and marry you. her. Yes, good point. And I'm, good I'm point. sorry. Like I mean, it's extremely superficial <laughs> to be like, I'm sorry, but have you even seen Legally Blonde? Like, do you not remember this? Quality? I mean, <laughs> So I have seen Legally Blonde, and I'm very glad you bring this up because I think that that's really <laughs> It is. I mean, just in that, like, it's, it's on top of obscuring the humanity of all of these real women. She's also obscuring the humanity of Elle Woods, and I just won't stand for it. Maybe. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I just thought of something. They're going to do, like, a Roald doll Agatha Christie where they go back and remake Legally Blonde, but now she's not going to Harvard to get a man. She's going to Harvard because she actually cares about learning and her own personal betterment and perhaps helping others who are less fortunate. And that's it. Right. So she's a completely different person and it's a completely different story. But yep. we'll call but, it legally blonde. But with the uh, with modern technology, it can still be played by uh, whatever age she was at the time, uh, Reese Witherspoon. This is funny. We're going to have to talk about this on a future episode because I just wrote an entire piece about this for another publication that will be out in a couple of days. And uh, yeah, so... Anyway, to be okay, continued on well, that front. Sounds good. Sounds good. But let's return. Let's return to the question of, um, you know, the humanity and the gendered humanity of women. Do we want to segue? Yes, I think we do. I think we want to segue into a different article by. So the author of this article is Maggie Smith. Professor McGonagall. You might be thinking of Downton Abbey and <laughs> the Dowager <laughs> yeah. Countess. The Dowager Countess. I am. I had to truly, this is going to seem ridiculous. <laughs> so first of all, we we're talking about an article called My Marriage Was Never the Same After That. In 2016, I wrote a poem that went viral. My home life got complicated. It's in The Cut. It's by Maggie Smith. It's part of The Cut's um, sort of divorce package, apparently. Um, it has like a bunch of different articles about women getting divorced. But I had to, before we talked, Google image search Maggie Smith poet to specifically to not have an image of the actress, the British actress, the elderly, very elderly British actress who plays the Dowager Countess on Downton Abbey in my head the whole time. And uh, what did you, does that make sense? Yeah. What did you find? It didn't work. It didn't, I, she's a perfectly <laughs> lovely looking non ancient, I guess, American woman. It doesn't matter I still am picturing the other Maggie Smith the whole time. What is a weekend? <laughs> exactly. Nothing can be done about this. Nothing can be done about this. I'm, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, she's having all these issues while also trying to hold things together um, in her aristocratic family in the north of England. Yeah. What would really make this for me to really just kind of like explode the metaverse, I think we should get... Dame Maggie Smith, the you know mm -hmm. phenomenal and and lauded English actress, to do a dramatic reading of this essay <laughs> from the cut by a different Maggie Smith, and uh, that'll just be the nexus of everything. I mean, I don't think that my Britcom's newsletter would ever recover because there would be nothing else to ever talk about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So this article, which we should actually talk about, although the, the side notes are parenthetical, italicized side, side notes are maybe at least as good as the thing itself. But 
It is one of these essays, and somebody alerted me to it, I think for our purposes, possibly, on Twitter. So, um, Yes, this was described originally by us as the personal essay as revenge porn category. Yes. And then somebody somebody found that memorable enough to, uh, to say it back to us and provide us with this link, which uh, thank you very much. We appreciate that. Yeah, so I saw this shared in a kind of, like a writer I really respect was very much taking the side of the woman who wrote this. And I was thinking of something I think that you were saying about how like the, you know, how these things are written and how we were talking always about like, you know, what's the other side and so forth. And I just keep thinking about like the quality of the writing is obviously going to be better from a writer. And here is a woman who, whose poetry by her own admission went viral. It's so, you know, captivating, right? Like, yeah, she tells you a story talk about people who are like a niche audience for relatability. Like I wrote a poem and it went viral and I became a famous poet. Like that's that's three people. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is not a lot of people. Um, what I know about poetry is and I know surprisingly a lot of poets for somebody who never quite figured out poetry myself. I know a lot of people who are professional poets and what they have in common is that that is not their primary source of income. And that's true of all sorts of writing, but it's particularly true of poets. Like, are there people whose main source of income is being a poet? Does that exist? Uh, I don't know if it exists anymore, unless you're like Rupi Kaur, who, you know, like an right. Instagram poet, like one of those. Yes, there's that's one. That's basically there's all one. there is now. Yes. Oh, and the poet laureate, like, then, then you also get paid to be a poet. But you don't hold that job for long, right? Like, you don't right. hold it for more than a few years. Anyway, yes limited career opportunities for poets exactly um i mean that's that's kind of well oh too many too many strands are going in my head at once and i don't want to be making too much mishmash for our listeners but yeah basically it's um the story of a woman who is this little old me writer lady but then her poem goes viral she's a famous poet this is too much for her lawyer husband, and for reasons that are doubtless explored in the book from which this is an adapted excerpt, um, the book You Could Make This Place Beautiful by Maggie Smith. Um, it's it's too much for him. They get divorced. Um, what I could not figure out and what's not mentioned at all, and I reread this to be sure, is what she's earning, even at the peak of her star power as a poet. Because, and the reason this is relevant is um, there's this line in it. Okay. Okay. I'm quoting now. Okay. Once in a meeting in my lawyer's office, my lawyer and I are on one side of the conference table, my husband and his on the other, my husband's lawyer used air quotes when she talked about my work. When you were, quote, working, she said. Okay. So that's at the end of a section. Um, and... It's it's like this dig, you know, like and it, it hurts, you know. It's it's like a real knife going in moment, you know. Mm-hmm. But then, and and when I first read it, I thought like I'm a writer, you know. My husband has an actual person job that you know, much as I mean, I, I have a full time job and I freelance and you know whatever I work. But the point is like whatever I do, it's never gonna pay as well as being an actual like white collar worker in the world who's not a writer and I thought oh boy like this is this hurts you know but then I started to think about it and I thought like well what is she actually earning 
And maybe there is something to this. And maybe the fact that she goes on business trips that don't actually bring in money for the family, if that's indeed the case, and it's, it's I don't know, but it's a hunch I have, maybe that's relevant. Um, anyway. I want to like pause the podcast to phone a friend um, that, you know, we have, we have a poet friend, Lee Stein. She's been on the podcast a number of times. Um, I want to ask her, like, do poets get paid to go to the AWP conference, which is... And how much? How much are they paid? You know what? Um, I'm, I'm going to text Lee and see if she... Uh, maybe she'll just look at her <laughs> phone. Okay. We'll see if she gets back to me. I have asked her. And um, in the meantime, though, I, I do want to talk about this whole, like, I, this idea that there's something inherently gendered about somebody who does one kind of work... And that, you know, where their job is inside the home, as compared with somebody who does another kind of work, you know, like traditional labor outside of the home. The idea that if the person who's working in the home is a woman and the person working outside of the home is a man, that any friction that results um, from this setup with respect to like who ends up taking care of household maintenance and such, that it's necessarily a gendered phenomenon as opposed to something more kind of universally human. And the thing that I keep kind of coming back to is, um, and and I, I am really curious now also about the income aspect of things, because I think that makes an even bigger difference. It really like would change the dynamic of things. But even if you like allow for the idea that say you have two people and one is doing a job that's, you know, that's based like they work from home and the other is working outside the home and they make roughly the same amount of money and they do roughly the same amount of work. It may not be fair that this is the case, but it nevertheless makes logical sense that the person who is at home, who is in the house, ends up also taking responsibility for the kind of running of the household because they're present for it. And like running a household takes, it takes work. And I, I was thinking about like all of the stuff that goes into it, you know, things like keeping your refrigerator and pantry and like whatever other household items you need, like keeping those in stock. You know, there are things you can do, like you can outsource some of the labor. You can get somebody to come and clean for you. You can get somebody to come and landscape for you. But even then, like you have to have somebody who's managing those people, like making sure they come to the house and making sure they get paid and so on. So there's all of this stuff that like, it's literally unavoidable. Somebody has to do it. And the breakdown of who does it, like, again, whether or not it's fair, it just is logical that this will end up falling to the person who's actually in the house, who's most kind of tuned into what's happening inside the house at any given time. Does that make sense? It does. But I think the children change a lot. And I think this comes up in the piece. And just in terms of like, if you have children, even if they're in full time school, daycare, whatever, there are rules, and this is pre-COVID even, um, that if a child has a fever, they have to be picked up. And certainly since COVID, there are these like, if if this, then that, and certain numbers of days that they have to even be home. And you can basically end up, if you're the person who's the kind of default one working from home, you can end up basically like having a work week of, you know, 10 hours that week that you have to work. And you can have assignments that could fill 50 hours. And that's what I think does happen to a lot of, or two or four, or what I like, it's something that can happen is that 
a woman who is trying to do a certain amount of work can't because of children being home a lot, you know? And I think the stuff to Mm -hmm. do with children, I think this is where um, I think both this article and Anne Helen Peterson, when she writes on this topic, which she often does, not in the article we're talking about, but in others um, or the newsletter, whatever, um, a lot is made of things like needing to make Valentine's or that type of emotional labor. I don't think that that's it. I think it really is just more like having to go to a doctor's appointment, having a child who's literally in your house too young to look after themselves and you have work, which obviously during COVID was a much, much bigger deal because you have people, you know, like all, you know, trying to work at home all the time with children at home all the time, which was a whole different situation. But even in more normal times, this is something. And I think that's, And it's not that it's instead of having to deal with stuff like the refrigerator and the yard and so forth, it's in addition. So I do think that that changes things. And I think that what happens often is that, you know, it becomes easier for one person to be the one who mainly deals with that than the other. And it becomes as for family, as an economic unit, it 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 becomes a little silly to have the person who is either making more money or working physically outside the home or both to be the one who's dealing with all of that just in the name of some kind of 50 50 uh feminist household organization does that yeah i don't know if any of that makes sense i know it does and i i want to tell the story of how like i've i've been experiencing a version of this very close to home literally in fact in inside my home um because my husband and i have decided to embark on adding a second bathroom to our house because we only have one and um as we were getting this underway I was really into like I want to do the fun stuff you know I'm really into like I want to pick out the wallpaper and I'm looking at tile and I'm browsing like Facebook marketplace for vintage sinks which I got one it's really really great oh you did okay I'm glad to hear it yeah, I'm yeah, glad right, to hear right. it. Uh, came with a matching toilet, um, which I have gotten the husband's approval for. Uh, so, oh, okay, you know, yes, okay. Cleared, cleared that bar. But as we started this undertaking, I decided in like a fit of peak that I didn't want to have anything to do with the kind of bureaucratic, administrative, like permitting and arranging and stuff that goes into before you can start actually doing your renovation you have to like get permission from the city to do it and I I just had a sense that this was going to be really aggravating and that I wanted no part of it so I told my husband like I just want you to handle this and he said okay and he has, um, to his credit, like I, um, I've not really had to have anything to do with it except for one time. And then I was really grateful that I wasn't more involved in this process because the little contact that I had with the bureaucracy that we have to like get permission from, um, I experienced a moment of animalistic rage that was terrifying actually to myself that I could feel that angry at somebody I'd never met. <laughs> um, but even though I got what I wanted I've also felt ridiculous at every single stage of this process, realizing that it would have made so much more sense, like just logically for me to be the one taking care of this, because I am the one who has the writer job and I am at home all day and he works in an office 15 miles away. And like the place that we have to go to get our permitting is a 10 minute walk from the house. And yet, like, you know. So, I mean, the upshot of this is like, I spared myself the aggravation, but I really feel like a jerk. But women women are never the jerk in any situation. And that have you not <laughs> absorbed the message from the essays? 
I guess I'm an honorary man, but yeah, no, I, I feel like a dick. I was like, this makes no sense. And I am actually an asshole for having asked for it to be like this. So yeah. Well, that's it. I'm excited for you in your bathroom. Um, we, we also are hoping to add a, a powder room um, and I will physically remove the pantry that is where the toilet needs to go and install it myself if that's what it takes even though i'm not actually going to do that because that would probably break our house but um oh man but i mean like think about how you'd be taking on a a manly form of labor and maybe like staking a very feminist claim it would be a mistake it would be a mistake more important i have gotten a response from lee stein Um, okay good good I said, hey, do poets get paid to attend AWP and do panels and such, or do they go on their own dime? Lee writes back, not only do they not get paid, they pay to speak at AWP. You have to buy a ticket if you're an AWP speaker. And she sent me a tweet from somebody named Kimberly Nguyen, uh, says, I told my job that I'm taking time off because I'm speaking on an AWP panel. And they were like, that's so cool. Are they compensating you? And I was like, no. And then they asked, do you at least get a comp ticket? And I said, also no. So the answer to this is, um, is, is she making money when she attends these AWP conferences? No. In fact, she is spending the household's money. Yes to go away. This is relevant. This is relevant. So I read this article and I felt like I am identifying with the worst traits in both of these people. And I'm also like, I, I'm going to be, I, I too, a Spartacus moment of assholery. I am the asshole. <laughs> um, if you get to call yourself one for um, renovation division of labor, I too, I will call myself one for all of this because she says that her husband like she has this whole part where she talks about when she versus her husband go on work trips. And it's clearly, that was the part where I really wondered, I wonder how he sees all of this because she's gracious about it when he's away and she's dealing with their small children. But when he, when she's away, it's not often. And it's, it's definitely, it's only like many times a year and it's not, you know, it's not much of anything. And really like, he's just so like pouty about it, you know? And it's like, Eh, I don't know. I bet they're both annoyed. Honestly, I bet they're because it is a lot like my husband's away this week. I'm not full time looking after two children because they are in school and daycare, but it's still a lot and it's difficult. And the idea that that the expected pose of a spouse is like infinite graciousness and not like some graciousness and some. But of course, this is difficult. Seems um, interesting here. Um, yeah, this is actually, can I just read this section because I breezed past this. Okay. It says my occasional travel had been a sore spot in our marriage since before my poem went viral, but more and more requests were coming into my speaker's agency because of that poem. I'd spend two days here, four days there. And a couple times a year, I would be gone for a week long workshop, but the bulk of my time was spent at home. Okay. So I just added, I did a little math in my head, just kind of impromptu, not my forte, nevertheless. Mm-hmm. Um, two days here, four days there. And then a couple times a year, she's gone for a week at a time. This is actually like a lot of travel. Yes, it really is a lot of travel. And with small children, it is, I, I don't want to say too much, everybody's different, but it is, it's asking a lot in both directions. If her husband's doing this, it's asking a lot of her. It's, you know, it's very hard to be, you know, solo parenting small children. And it's different 
it's obviously, you know, what's different for a single parent is that while they will probably have it harder on the whole, they may have some system in place for sort of logistics, even just like how to deal with the morning. You know what I mean? And if you're used to having a routine and you break that routine, um, all I'll say is we got everybody dropped off on time today and it was not trivial. And um, I am definitely wearing clothing I wore yesterday and slept in because that was not the priority. Um <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's just oh, th- that she's away a lot. And her husband is, I can imagine, thinking that not only is she away a lot, but she's away a lot not earning money. And as Lee Stein has <laughs> let us know, spending money, it sounds like. And I could see that being um, a bit like, I, I don't think that the husband's necessarily in the wrong to be annoyed about that. My hunch from this article is that he has um, a not so interesting job that pays a lot and she has an interesting job that pays, you know, negative. (laughs) I don't want to say nothing because her poem, her poem went viral, but, but that, what does it mean for your poems to have gone viral? I mean, I think, I think this is something really like hard to understand outside the writing world and something that it took me a long time to understand, um, which is that you can get pretty far in writing and have and and be working many many hours a week even just on writing and still you're probably not making as much as a lawyer like depends what kind of lawyer but i mean i'm going to go a step further you know just from what i know of what kind of advances poets get for their books and that's basically the only place where you get paid if you're a poet unless somebody pays you to speak but they don't generally um you know, this is basically you can you can be a full time quote full time poet like a working poet and basically be making less than minimum wage. It's you know even if you're a right. very famous poet, like even if you go viral, unless virality is your means of income, unless you're again like an Instagram poet, then your fame is not monetizable at all. This is worse than our worlds, then, it sounds like. Um, yeah, no. I mean, yeah. I'm lucky. I make a, a very good living doing what I'm doing. So it took a while to get there. But um, but yeah, no, I don't make poet money. I don't make lawyer money, but I don't make poet money. So Same, same. Um, and I think poets, you know, they, they bring art to the world. And that's great. I could imagine, though, that if you're in an actual household and one person is a lawyer and the other is a poet, the idea that feminism dictates that the poet's work is worth as much as the lawyer's work, it's tricky, right? I mean, like, I I struggle with this myself thinking, like, you know, if I make less money, should I, you know, how much more should I do? Should I do any more? Because you know, my husband does a ton and I think, should I do more? You know, like, oh, it's it's challenging. And I think also like when both people involved, and I think this is really where children and especially very young children do make things quite different from just like the household stuff without children, which is that you really, everybody involved is just really tired and kind of at their wits end from being exhausted. So I think the idea of like, what what does it mean to take on even more, you know, can be a little like tricky because if you're working full time, even if you're not earning a lot, you still have only the bandwidth you have, right? So you can't, I, I don't know. I don't know if any of this makes any sense. So I guess what I'm saying is I think these are probably two people who are pretty exhausted and probably resentful in different ways. Like if you're a lawyer and your spouse is a poet, maybe you wish you could go off and be a poet, you know? 
like maybe that's like I don't know much about lawyers um but from what I understand a lot of them wish they were poets or something like that yeah so I have one last thing to say about this which is as I'm trying to figure out like what would the most feminist way of approaching this be and I don't know there's something about the idea that you know, irrespective of what kind of monetary value the, each of these person's professions is bringing into the home, that, um, you know, each spouse should be equally supportive of the the other and, like, equally gracious about being left holding the bag when one needs to go and do something for his or her, you know, professional aggrandizement. There's something I think almost like like a little bit too precious and kind of infantilizing about the idea that like, because the poet in this case is a woman that she needs to be given all of the same kind of consideration and, um, and seen as valuable kind of on principle because feminism, because like, you know, she, she is owed this as a woman. There's something a little bit kind of, I don't know, is it like the soft bigotry of low expectations or is it just infantilizing? Like the thing is also if the husband's opinion was that little wifey should have, you know, everything that she wants because because she's the woman in the relationship, like that would also be, you know, considered offensive. Like that wouldn't be him really yeah. seeing her as an equal. So I kind of, I guess I, I feel bad for the man. I feel bad for the man in this situation. I feel like he's kind of damned if he does and damned if he doesn't. I can see that. I also think, I guess, where I see that there is like a gender aspect that does line up with how the author presents it is, I think there is something where, especially once there are children, there's this like incentive for the woman to pursue lines of work that allow her to be available as a mother. And you know, this is helpful to her husband and his career, right? If she's around and kind of able to mm -hmm. do stuff. And if the school calls and says, you know, come in 10 minutes and pick up your child, which is a thing that happens. Um, and it's not only women who pick up their children. I know men do this too all the time. But, you know, if the school calls, there needs to be somebody who can do this, right? And I think what this seems to be the type, like this story seems to be kind of a case where like the woman went down that path not that she didn't want to, but like she needed to be, somebody needed to be available for the children. She was that somebody. And it just so happened that the thing she was doing as kind of a glorified hobby took off, you know, but not necessarily financially. And I still like, this is it for me. This is it. What the finances of this are really just so crucial. Like to do air, the air quotes about work are, if you're paying to go to a, a writing conference, that's fair. I'm sorry. I think that's fair. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I guess I'm I'm the asshole for saying this, but I don't know because like <laughs> it's exhausting. That's, like, that's today's title. We are the asshole. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> are we one asshole or two or or more than two? I don't know. Do do two women assholes equal one male asshole? I don't know. I don't know. But can we do? Thanks. Yeah, we have one more thing to talk about, and we have ten minutes yes. left on the ZenCaster um, timer. So, oh, good. Okay, so Kat wrote the best article ever, and it's called "Stop Trying to Make Quote Digital Blackface Happen" um, on Unheard, and it is extremely, extremely good. There's a quote from it that I have to read because I love it so much. Okay, ready? 
this is cat. I'm uh, I'm cat now. <laughs> okay. I'm going to do a dramatic reading of my Can you do it in the voice of Maggie Smith? No, just kidding. No, I was going to do it in Cartman voice. Um okay, ready. I'm going to do my own voice. How terminally online must one be to think that the quote most insidious form of racism comes in the form of some 60-year-old Facebook grandma in De- Des Moines um who feels that her emotions are best represented by a is it a gif or a jeff gif gif thank you of stanley from the office rolling his eyes okay it's a wonderful article but this part specifically is so much like that thing that Anne helen peterson says about the mansplainer with the phd having woman on a date this idea that the microaggression is actually the worst thing um yeah so anyway but please kat tell us what what is digital blackface and why is it the most insidious form of racism <laughs> Because that's what you're arguing, right? Yeah, yeah, that's what I, I'm arguing. First, I argued that butts were <laughs> racist, and now I'm arguing that digital blackface is no. Um, this is a, this is a recurring theme, and um, as I note in the piece, it's it's one that I'm quite tired of. I would like us to stop doing it. Uh, I would like to make a plea here and now publicly to everybody who is considering writing another one of these articles about how reaction gifts featuring black people are quote unquote digital blackface when white people employ them. Uh, could we not? Could we please just not? So this is the argument. The argument is that when a white person online chooses a GIF featuring a black person to to use as a reaction, you know, to encompass like uh, convey an emotion of some sorts. They are engaged in digital blackface, which is harmful and damaging because it reinforces racial stereotypes and is basically just an updated version of minstrelsy. So this concept initially made its debut in 2017. And at the time, it was already like kind of transparently just outrage bait. Um, it was in a Teen Vogue essay, which I feel kind of tells you everything you need to know. Um, and yet, like, it's it's this thing that kind of won't die. And the most recent iteration of it, resurrected zombie-like um, this past weekend, uh, was on CNN. This article contained a like, confessional from a woman saying that she had quote peeled black people's faces off to put on her own well that's no that that it would be a problem that would be a problem if she were actually doing that i think that's a crime uh yeah yeah it's i was i was saying you know it's, it's like it's murder and uh it's, it's beyond murder it's, it's extremely gruesome hannibal lecter did that Yes, Hannibal Lecter yes. did that when he made his escape, um, and it was and it was very bad. You shouldn't do that. But also this this compulsion to describe something that is like honestly, it's anodyne. You're clicking a GIF on the internet, like even if you want to argue that there are implications to that culturally that maybe have like harmful connotations, whatever. Like it's not akin to an act of violence and describing it as though you've committed an actual murder using like extremely graphic language is just i mean i the idea that this somehow serves the black community i think is is very silly but i was just going to say my feeling about this is this is one of these things that is being it's like a manufactured narrative and i really really resent that this narrative is being manufactured where it is, you know, in locations where like the kind of cultural discourse and the national conversation is being set. You have people who are trying and trying and trying to persuade 
people to be at each other's throats to you know that they can't trust each other that they can't relate to each other on the basis of race and i'm sorry but like if you are one of these white women specifically who is bewailing that you're so sorry and so wrong and so uncomfortable with the fact that you feel represented by cultural products, which is what gifts are, by memes that have black people in them. Like if that makes you so uncomfortable, you should probably move to a country that has only white people in it because you're really not cut out to live in a diverse society. Like a thriving diverse society, which America for better or worse is, you know, the best example of we currently have going. Canada. Can a little shout out to Canada, which is yeah. diverse and doing pretty yeah. well. We're doing we're doing all right. Yeah. We're pretty also, diverse. also yeah. Canada. Yeah. Yay Canada. But in these societies <laughs> People of all racial backgrounds and all backgrounds generally are going to be engaging with and relating to and being moved by and feeling represented by cultural products that are being created by people who do not superficially look like them. And that's a good thing. It is what we want. Here, here. Um, I feel bad changing to even like pivoting at all because I, I just want to be like, yes. Well, I, I, did, I needed to yell. I needed to yell a minute and now I'm done. <laughs> so pivot away. No, no, I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, the only thing that I was trying to think about is when I saw that CNN article, um, before I saw your article about it, when I just like I, it popped up in my feed, I didn't click on it or anything. All I could think was like, okay, that's the last gasp of something that's done. And that's an annoying type of article but it's also very dated and those things don't happen so much anymore. But then I was, um, as I was telling you before we started recording, I go back and forth on this because I can't decide whether I want it to be that that's done or whether it is in fact done. Because then you see things like the Anne Helen Peterson newsletter or whatever, where clearly this this, um, standpoint continues and this way of seeing the world continues. and it didn't necessarily end in 2020. I mean, you see little glimmers of something is shifting vibe-wise in terms of like what I think about is like these sort of DEI initiatives that get abandoned or, um, oh boy, I had some other, oh, right, oh, yes. And the the end of the inclusive model, fashion modeling that, that had its little heyday and now it's back to being like, you know, extremely skinny white women or whatever. Um, Thanks, Ozempic. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah, I think that like there's a sense in which um, people got a little like it just things start to seem dated and the kind of um, histrionic, if you want to say it, uh, sort of self-flagellation of um, the white female influencers in 2020 who are going to tr- strive to do better and they're going to read their Robin D'Angelo. That feels like of another moment. And I will say that sometimes I see kind of anti-woke commentary on these topics that misses that bigger picture of like a lot of people are sick of this and i think that 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 it's heartening that a lot of people are sick of this and i think a lot of and and you can say that you're sick of this without people thinking that you're some sort of arch conservative reactionary whatever because i think everybody's kind of sick of this except for like possibly noah berlatsky and like three other people you know what i mean Ah, don't say his name However, however, Um, you've got, by the way, you've got like five seconds to wrap this up. We're feminine chaos. We're feminine chaos. And we are here to tell you that you are too problematic and you're canceled. And 
Okay. We're Feminine Chaos. We're a podcast. If you enjoyed this conversation, please consider joining us on our Substack for $5 a month. You get access to two exclusive subscribers-only episodes per month and also our entire back catalog of previous episodes and also open threads and so on and so forth. So that's it, right? That's everything? Yep, that's everything. This has been Feminine Chaos. That it has. Bye. Bye.